That's a Scottism. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if we can say his name. We can cut that out. That's okay. His name is Scott. He's great. He's taken. <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't really like trying to get in there. Just no, to clear wait, it up. No, I'm just saying it's fine. It's just his name. It's, it's this is getting weird. I'm going to cut it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's just getting really fucking weird. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome to BYOB, the Bring Your Own Book Podcast. I'm Tilly. I'm Nikki. And I'm Kelly. Can you believe this is our last episode of season two? No! I can't. No way. <laughs> I know. It feels like we've been doing this for years, but also not that long. Yeah, I agree. Isn't time funny <laughs> that way? <laughs> uh, in this episode, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite books, uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning literary novel The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, which was published in 2013. Some discussion trigger warnings uh, for all of you listening, as this is at times a very dark book full of graphic descriptions of violence, drug abuse, suicidal ideation, and death. So, with that in mind, here's the publisher's synopsis from Nikki. Aged 13, Theo Decker, son of a devoted mother and a reckless, largely absent father, survives an accident that otherwise tears his life apart. Alone and rudderless in New York, he is taken in by the family of a wealthy friend. He is tormented by an unbearable longing for his mother, and down the years clings to the thing that most reminds him of her. A small, strangely captivating painting that ultimately draws him into the criminal underworld. As he grows up, Theo learns to glide between the drawing rooms of the rich and the dusty antique store where he works. He is alienated and in love, and his talisman, the painting, places him at the center of a narrowing, ever more dangerous circle. Yeah. I feel like this is really misleading, but we'll get into it. <laughs> you think this synopsis is misleading? Yeah. I think yes and no, and I think my review will probably touch slightly on that. But Yeah, yeah. I feel like it, it steered me in a different direction than actually reading the book but yeah donna there's, there's so much in the book that it would be hard to kind of capture it all in such a small thing mm -hmm. i think it covers some of the basics but i agree a lot of the thematic elements are not present in this like 250 word synopsis <laughs> yeah. why couldn't you like summarize a 771 book in one paragraph donna <laughs> like why what like it's hard <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what? Like, it's hard. Yeah. Like, now I'm just picturing if Elle Woods was the star of this book instead of Theo Decker, what a very different book it would be. Yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. Would it? Yeah. I don't know if it would have hit the same. <laughs> no, maybe not. Anyway, um, Kelly, why don't you tell us about what we're drinking tonight? Sure. So the drink we've chosen to pair with this episode is a non-alcoholic hot toddy, which is made with black tea, honey, lemon juice, cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg. We wanted to focus on one of the gentler, more loving parts of this often dark novel, and this felt like something Hobie and Theo would drink in the kitchen after working on furniture in the peaceful sunlit shop all day. And I could totally see Hobie preparing this and showing Theo how to make it, how to, how it'll soothe your throat and all that. Mm -hmm. So 
I know Hobie was such a gourmand. Like he loved food and kind of cooking. Oh, such a sweetheart. I love him. So yeah, with that, cheers, ladies. I hope this warms you up. Cheers. 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 Mm. <sighs> Cozy. It's tea. Great. Yeah. It's, it's delicious. Yeah. I've actually never had a real hot toddy because I'm like, why would you ever want to have alcohol? Because, okay, not would, why, <laughs> let me, pre- let me rephrase that. Like, I know a lot of singers who swear by it and I'm like, that's the worst thing you could do is drink alcohol. But, you know, to each a scone, as my husband would say, to each their own. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, great. So now that we've all had a tasty sip of a warm, uh, calming beverage, uh, <laughs> why don't we all talk about our star ratings for this book? Um, I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe I'll start because I've actually read this book before. Sure. This is my second time reading it. I mentioned at the beginning, it's one of my all-time favorite books. I first read this uh, in 2018, so four years ago just kind of on a whim after having heard really great things. Um, I do have a background in English literature, so I'm really drawn to a lot of like literary novels if I have to kind of be in the right mood. But uh, four years ago, it was the time for me <laughs> to start this book. And it was instantly a five-star book for me. I could tell right away it was a true masterpiece that made me feel so many feelings. I find that Donna Tartt's prose is so accessible um, and so powerful, and I find it's literary without feeling overly pretentious, which a lot of really like prestigious books can kind of fall into that trap of being like a little too snooty. Uh-huh. Um, and I find the simplicity of this story, plus the attention to detail and subtext, is just unlike any other. I loved rereading it as well for this podcast. Uh, it is heartbreaking. I don't know if it was a book that I would necessarily want to reread if it hadn't been for the podcast, but I did really enjoy rereading it. I felt it really held up for me, and I was able to kind of sink into the non-plot elements this time, which was really, um, really impactful. So I love this book. Uh, okay. Kelly, why don't you tell us about your experience? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, so I agree with you on pretty much everything you said. Um, I was actually the one to suggest this book, and I kind of did it <laughs> sort of the way you uh, picked up the book originally. I was like, this is a bestseller. I've heard it's good. Like, maybe we you should read it. Sir. Yeah, I was like, yeah. maybe we should read it. I don't know. And I <laughs> I thought it was a thriller that like spanned decades and it had to oh. do with a painting. And I mean, it kind of is at some points, but it's really not. So um, all that to say, I gave it a five out of five. I was a little nervous um, because when I saw the sheer size of it, I was like, oh, God. But I, like, made a plan. I sectioned it off. I started from the get-go with the audiobook, which was amazing. The narrator is David Pitu. I hope I'm saying his last name right. He's actually a actor-director. He's been nominated for Tonys, so mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing. And he was incredible. Like, I think one of the best audiobooks I've ever listened to. Um, I thought Donna Tartt, just like you said, Tilly, I thought her writing was masterful, but it was still really accessible and easy for me to understand. So I didn't have to worry about the slog of it all, even though the chapters were too long. And we'll get into that. <laughs> it was too long. 
But um, I also thought the way that she wrote her dialogue was so natural and having mm-hmm. the audiobook to listen to just was like, here you go. Like, it just, if I needed any more proof that her dialogue was well written, hearing it read aloud by an actor, a narrator, it was like chef's kiss. It was so natural. It was a lot of fun. I gave it a five because um, it made me feel a lot of things. And I thought it was a really well-crafted story. However, I still had a few problems with the book that I will get into later. And I don't think, just like you said, Tilly, I don't think I could ever reread this book. <laughs> um, not because it, Yeah, not because it wasn't great, but because it was just so heavy for me at times. And this book gave me some like Addie LaRue vibes, which I loved Addie LaRue personally. Uh, that was another five-star read for me, but I haven't reread that one, I think for the same reason. Um, so for me, this is a book that I only probably need to read once in my lifetime. It la- it gave me a lasting impression and I don't think I'm going to forget it anytime soon, but yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I totally get that. With books that are so emotionally, like, draining, like, they pull you in, they pluck at your heart strings, you really relate to a lot of things, and then there's so much that happens. Yeah, it's like, I don't I don't know if I want to subject myself to that, mm-hmm. money, that many feelings again, so I totally understand that. I'm sorry that. you had to read it twice, Dilly. No, no, I actually really <laughs> loved reading it twice. I wasn't sure if I was going to, but I did. And I'm really glad that you enjoyed it and gave it five stars, so yay. Um, Nikki, what about you? Um, so I I agree with pretty much everything you guys said. I think that this is a book I will read again. Mm. Probably not this year, but pretty soon. Um, like Kelly, I was really nervous to start this book. And I had it sectioned off so that I could read it kind of in like 29 days or so. I had... um. I had like 26 pages to read a day, and then I ended up reading the entire thing in four days. Oh, so, oh my god. Yeah. Oh god, my brain. Okay. It was like a roller coaster of feelings and extreme literary depression. Yeah. I would call it because I didn't actually feel depressed, but there was an essence that was different <laughs> while I was reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this book on my shelf for probably close to four years um and um it's a book that i would look at and be like i know i really want to read it but it just doesn't feel like the right time and i think that if we wouldn't have done this podcast it would have just never felt like the right time it's very Mm -hmm. intimidating it's very large something about when people say this is like literary fiction Mm -hmm. automatically makes my insides go like (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) so yeah, there were definitely things with the book that just kind of like pacing wise, I wish would have been a little bit different. But in terms of the actual content, I loved everything in this book. I found a way to connect to almost every character in a good way or a bad way. And I I found myself completely enthralled throughout the whole thing. So I gave it five out of five. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing that we all 
related so much to this book, especially given and we've talked a lot about how we all have kind of different reading tastes a lot of the time. But this is one book that uh, is really a testament to kind of reaching different audiences. Mm-hmm. And we each gave it five stars. I mean, when was the last time that happened? I think it was The Love Hypothesis, I Kelly, think you were so. saying. Very different book. <laughs> yeah, very, <laughs> Highly very <recommend>. different vibes. <laughs> Maybe my, I might I have can... to reread it after this. <laughs> just to lighten things up. I think Nikki, when you said literary depression, I can really relate to that. I think, um, I think of it as like a book hangover. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get like really intense book hangovers. And for this one, even rereading it the second time, I was like weeping by the end. Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, I, I also was kind of under a time crunch to finish it. So I was reading, I think 50 pages every morning before I started work which is like a nice way to start the day when you're reading, but also like was really kind of uh, difficult <laughs> for this book specifically. Yeah. So I think I finished the book in, I think I want to say like two weeks. I think it took about maybe like 16 days. Uh, I took a couple days off because, you know, sometimes you just, things don't happen. <laughs> and when I finished it, I like had a little cry and then had to go about my day as usual. And it was so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's really something about books like, I say books like this, but I don't necessarily mean books that are literary fiction or books that follow this kind of, like, archetype of events. There's something about books that make you feel that kind of literary depression, as I said, that I I feel like I need to be in this bubble that consists of only me. Yeah, no one talk to me. While I'm going through these feelings and... I don't know if it's healthy. I feel like I really romanticize that in a way. <laughs> like, it's really dark, and I have tea, and I am in a cabin all by myself, <laughs> and, like, oh. I'm surrounded by all of these really meaningful, probably, like, like super, like, snooty, as you said, <laughs> things. But I don't know what it is. Like, I just... I get into this, like, mood where I feel like nothing else exists. And then coming out of reading this book, I had a really hard time for a few days just trying to get back to thinking about other things in my life Mm -hmm. and trying to remember, like, why certain things matter or why they're important, why I should care about, like, X, Y, and Z. But yeah, I don't know. It's just a crazy experience. Mm -hmm. It really, it sounds like it really sucked you in. It did. Completely. There are are not very many books I find that can do that. But when you find them, it's it's really unique and special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's why I am so ready to read the book again. Because even though there were a lot of parts that I did find um, upsetting that overall feeling of like being totally like engrossed in something was Mm -hmm. worth it to like have to read those parts. Mm. Yeah. This took me probably like just over two weeks as well to read just like you Tilly. And like I skipped a bunch of days and then I had to double down because for me, (laughs) well, for me, I, this is going back to the long ass chapters, Donna. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I have a hard time stopping in the middle of a chapter. So I would like go to the end of a section of the chapter, but then I would be like, no, let's just keep pressing on and let's finish the chapter. 
And sometimes, like, I had the audiobook, and I was listening at two and a half speed at some times, which actually wasn't that fast, because Whoa. the way he read it, at two and a half, it was, like, a fast conversation, and not, like, like, sometimes it would be. <laughs> yeah, I listened to it at two times speed, and once you got adjusted, mm-hmm. it felt really, I'm not, like, natural, not natural, but, you know, yeah. natural. Yeah, and, like, this was while I was reading along. I wasn't just listening to the fast <laughs> talking. <laughs> but, like, so I have a hard time stopping in the middle of a chapter for any book. So this book, I was like, oh, my God. So after halfway through, when things started to get a bit more intense, I had trouble picking the book up, even though I really enjoyed it. It's like I had to emotionally prepare myself to go back into that feeling and i was Mm -hmm. like well what do i have to do today do i have time to go there i don't know if i have time for that today so then i'd have to skip days and then i'd have to double down the next day and read a whole chapter which like i was trying to say before and then i lost my train of thought um sometimes if i like if i didn't move the speed of the audiobook to two times speed or two and a half the chapters some of them were five hours so, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And I, I love the book still. <laughs> but wow. It was because they it's in parts. Mm-hmm. But the the audiobook was only parts. It didn't break it down into those little things. I found mm-hmm. that was hard logistically mm-hmm. while I cuz I would read some and then sometimes I would like draw and listen to the audiobook. And then when I had to, I'd read again, and then when I had to find my place in the audiobook, it was, like, an adventure. And not a fun one. It was, like, <laughs> pressing the 15-second the ahead thing, like, mm-hmm. 200 times to get to around where I stopped when I was reading. <laughs> yeah. They were really long chapters, and I did appreciate that she broke them up into like little sex- sections within each chapter. And I just treated those as, you know, what whatever got me closest to after 50 pages, the end of that, that's where I was yeah. stopping. Mm. And I think it does make sense when it's such a big book to break it up like that into like sections, then chapters, then parts. But I, I can see how that would be difficult. And it does seem strange that the audiobook wouldn't follow that same structure. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Audible, yeah. Get it together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really hard to keep track of where you yeah. put <laughs> Yeah, so loved it, but my God. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we've already kind of moved into first impressions, um, but I'm just going to keep that train rolling um, because I saw on the back of the book that it was described as Dickensian, mm. uh, i.e. like Charles Dickens, Dickens-esque, as you will, uh, if you will, and I don't know about you two, but that makes sense to me. I, I read a lot of Dickens in my undergrad, and it feels like obviously different time period, different styles of writing, mm-hmm. but it feels the same to me. It's so complete and full of these like scrappy, well-rounded characters that you follow for a long time. Mm-hmm. You get this like epic kind of journey. And then there's this ultimately, I think, not maybe not happy ending, but like resolution, mm-hmm. even for the characters who like sinned and quote unquote, fell from grace. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to ask if either of you like felt that way or, or what did you think about that? I'm going to be really honest. I've read maybe the first five pages of A Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, no, I don't need that. <laughs> so I really can't input anything of value to okay. that. 
question. So, Kelly, I mean, take it away. That's fair. I was going to say the I think the only Charles Dickens book I've read from like cover to cover is A Tale of Two Cities, and I actually loved that book. I had to read it for school, and mm-hmm. I was very surprised that I loved it, but this I think it was like in grade 11 or something, but I could totally see this book being um, referred to as Dickensian, because for me, with just the one book I read up from him, it's what you said, Tilly. It's like every character is this like really interesting person who is like a fully formed person and not just like, oh, yeah, so-and-so over there, you know? And um, also I find or I found with this book and A Tale of Two Cities, it all kind of has this underlying tone of like moroseness or just like Mm. even the happy times in this book i wasn't really happy and i best of times the worst of times yes i literally wrote that in my notes oh really (laughs) this book is so morose (laughs) even happy things aren't really happy that's i didn't write that down but i relate yeah i didn't read your notes i promise (laughs) that's so funny but i get that i had that vibe when i read a tale of two cities in high school and i had that during this this is why it took me so long to read this book because i loved it but i was like i don't know if i can do that today like i need a break i need a break donna and theo okay i need some hobie up in my life so yeah a tale of two cities i loved it but so many of the characters pulled my heartstrings so tightly and like it's just like what we just said like every Everything had an undercurrent of moroseness. Like, I could never truly be happy. And I don't know what that says about me, but (laughs) it was a lot. So I agree with the blurb on the back of the book. Yeah, it is a lot. I mean, especially because a lot of the time, what we feel like reading, especially when our lives are really heavy, is we feel like reading something that's different from our lives and like, escapism or, you know, like thrillers or romance or things that'll just kind of distract you from your problems. Mm -hmm. And these sorts of books don't distract you from your problems. They create all new problems that you didn't realize you had (laughs) and make you question all of the things you've ever felt in your life. And it just, it kind of disrupts things. And I don't think that means we shouldn't read them, but it does mean you kind of have to like find the right time Mm -hmm. and make the time and and read them because they will impact your life. But it's different than just a light fluffy read yeah and like i have no trouble being sad or whatever but i I see which is why i said that (laughs) oh no no like i have a lot of feelings but i was gonna say like when i see people on booktube who are like books that made me cry i love a good cry i'm like no i don't want to yeah nikki i cannot it's me when i'm sad i don't (laughs) want to get into a depression with this kind of literary book you know what i mean like i need some uplifting i need like ladies kicking ass i need something but i am not the person to be like yes let's feel down in the dumps with a great book (laughs) i can't i will literally my um my literary depression also um goes into movies and tv shows Mm. so if i find something that makes me feel okay that it does sound fucked up to say (laughs) when i find something that makes me feel really upset i hold on to it (laughs) and i just really want it to be in my life because i feel like it makes me a better artist hey and that's why i love the sadness Mm -hmm. that's why 
I, even though I've been scared out of it for now, really want to read A Little Life. Because even though all of these people, people I trust, like Tilly, have said, just don't fucking read it. (laughs) Don't do it to yourself. There's this stupid part of me that's like, I need it (laughs) to fulfill something in me that I, I, there's a hole somewhere in me. And this book is going to patch that in some way, which is so weird. (laughs) I, it's funny you say that. I thought about A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara a lot while I was reading this book. I think it's the only other book I've read that I think is comparable in tone and in content and in like um, masterfulness of writing. Mm. But as Nikki mentioned, I cannot in good conscience recommend that book to someone as it is so traumatic and devastating. Honestly, I read it several years ago and I I still think about it all the time and it upsets me. Mm. But it's that same idea, right, of that like sweeping epic of contemporary fiction and you follow these people through their lives and all these bad things happen to them. But there's all these like themes of identity and art and you see them all through the lenses of the four main characters. And it's a book that impacts you but makes you upset also. I will say, A Little Life goes even further than this one into a zone of, like, bad things happen for no reason, mm. I think. And that was too much for me. Like, I, I understand, Nikki, and I, I, can, I can relate to that in some level, too, of, like, things that make me feel things are important and special and, like, really well yeah. done. Because it, anything that can put you in that character's shoes is really really a good writer and a good storyteller. But I found a lot of the time with A Little Life, it was like thing after thing that was just so upsetting. And oh God, why can't can't this person just know peace? Mm -hmm. And that was what was too much for me personally. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people describe it as torture porn. Yes. I don't feel like the goldfinch was torture porn. No. No. But I do think that it was sad like 99.99% of the time. Yeah. But that 0.001. I can't think of anything right now, but I know it was there. <laughs> I think it was the brightness of um of art and this is where I get all emotional because I work in the like we all work in the arts, but I work in a in like a, a zone where I see a lot of visual art and I used to be like a very avid gallery goer before you know we got into this pandemic oh yeah i've heard about that idea (laughs) yeah yeah funny thing hey who knows and the idea of people's like stories and effects being presented visually and kind of enduring through the ages and still affecting people is an idea that like really Mm -hmm. makes me emotional so i find that to be the brightness of this book yeah and that's how it reminded me of Addie LaRue, which I guess mm. would be the only book I could recommend if I was going to recommend something. But it's not at all the same. It just gave me the same kind of feeling at the end. However, and I, I guess I will say it's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. That's my sort of recommendation if it's going to be a recommendation. <laughs> um, but I will say at the end of Addie LaRue, I felt things, but I didn't actually cry until we recorded the episode. This book, I shut the book and I just went into a slow, like your lip trembles and you're like, "Mm -hmm." 
And then I had to go, I had to like knock on the office door, like our at-home office. And I was like, I need a hug. And he was, my husband was like, oh, are you okay? I'm like, I finished my book. And it was really sad. And he's like, oh, okay. God, the number of times I've said those exact words. <laughs> See, I don't. I'm a very emotional empathic highly sensitive person but normally when i read something i'm pretty good at like locking it down Mm. and i yeah at the end of this book i shut it and then i was like oh okay and i was like i need a moment and i need to um whenever i have a bad day or if my husband has a bad day we throw a kiki like the song, A Kiki is a Party Ooh. for Calming All Your Nerves. So, um, yeah, we had a kiki that night. I had snacks and we just did fun things because I was like, I need to not be in this in this uh, literary world right now. <laughs> it was a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I celebrated the book ending by trying to watch the movie. <laughs> I've heard it's not great. I only got about... 15 minutes into it and you know i'm just gonna find the rotten tomatoes critic review because i really can't describe it any better oh my god i'm thrilled i have i have refrained from watching the movie because i just don't think there's any way that it could make me feel the same things or capture the same emotions it's so sad honestly it made me um kind of angry it's just so sad so, that the book could be so well received and so well done, and then the movie be a complete shit show. Like, wow. So this is the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes: beautifully filmed yet mostly inert. The Goldfinch mishandles its source material, <gasps> flattening a complex narrative into a largely uninvolving disappointment. <laughs> and having only watched fifteen minutes of of it. I can guarantee you that that is exactly <laughs> what it fucking did because oh, no. any kind of subtext was just like, they were like, what is it? We don't need it. Throw it in the garbage. Oh no. Like oh. <laughs> it was so bad. I only wanted to watch it for Finn Wolfhard. Yeah. And I casting. didn't even make it, didn't even make it to when he was in the thing. I just watched some clips of him on YouTube because Ooh. I could not make myself ruin the book who wrote the screenplay did she have any hand in it at all i don't think so oh, i'd be so pissed i tried I to look Donna. up what she um like if she said anything about it after and i couldn't find anything but i feel like if i was her and i saw that i'd be like what the fuck did you do to my masterpiece mm-hmm. yeah and i remember when the trailer first came out for the movie it came out just a couple of years ago and yeah. there was a lot of like buzz about it and like oh early oscar favorite because the cinematography was so beautiful and i think you know knowing that the book is a pulitzer prize winner knowing that there were good actors in it and then i remember it came out and there was just like quietly nothing that i remember <laughs> hearing and i was like ooh i'm going to stay away from this one i really think other than finn wolfhard the movie was horribly miscast mm. ooh i think I, I mean, I really like Finn Wolfhard and almost everything that I've seen him in, but he would have been a good replacement for almost every single character in this <laughs> other than who they chose. Whoa. He literally could have played almost every single character in this. Oh my god. Get on the phone. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Finn, <laughs> Just we need one you. one man goldfinch. <laughs> yes. 
The Finn Finch. <laughs> the Goldfin. The Goldfinch. <laughs> I'm really glad we can find these moments to laugh. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like when we start talking about like the real thing, it's not going to be as funny. But like, <laughs> listen, sometimes I think our listeners want to hear us be funny and sometimes i think they want to hear us be emotional and if they're listening to this episode they definitely want to hear some emotion because there's not much funny happening whatever that goes bgs destiny's child remix or cover whatever anyways yeah tilly do you have recommendations so I gave a non-recommendation, um, and yeah. I have an actual recommendation, oh. which I find is not maybe not quite as much of a fit, but still made me feel a lot of things. So I would also recommend, or not also, I would recommend <laughs> All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Um, this is not really similar in content, but it's thematically related. So in this book, it's a historical fiction novel that follows two children in the London Blitz and how their stories intertwine after being brought together by this like major traumatic event. So you can see that there's some similarities with the Goldfinch. I also found this book to be extremely beautiful and heartbreaking and full of very small details that were, that I thought about for a long time. Mm. So that would be my recommendation. It's much shorter. It's um, very beautiful, very sad, and very well-researched. Cool. Nice. I do have a recommendation. Oh. I actually have two, oh. but do you want me to only say one? Girl, I love hearing recommendations. You were the one who didn't want me to give two. <laughs> <I know. laughs> or three, because you want to cut it down, but you give two. I have six. Okay, no. so I, ha- I have a nonfiction recommendation and a fiction recommendation. Oh, great. So my nonfiction rec is Running With Scissors by Augustus Burroughs. Mm. There was something about the goldfinch that really reminded me about this autobiography. So Running With Scissors is about Augustus when he was younger his mother his mother his (laughs) His mother mother, his mother had a lot of mental health issues and she ends up leaving him with her therapist who is very weird his wife eats cat food his oldest son kind of drifts in and out of their lives he um has a room where he uh just masturbates and everybody knows wait he has a specific room to masturbate in is it not the bedroom like dude the first time we meet his daughter she's in the room under this blanket and he's like you know you're not supposed to be in here oh my god so no thanks it's really messed up and honestly if i didn't know that it was an autobiography (sighs) i would have thought this is all of this is too crazy to be real. Yeah. And actually, it was made into a movie. I saw uh, the movie. I didn't know it was yeah, real. Yeah, like, maybe seven years ago or so. It had a pretty good cast. Alec Baldwin. I think Catherine O'Hara played the mom. Um, yeah. So, it it's crazy. But it had a lot of really... The, like, feelings I had while reading both of them were very similar. These kids thrown into these situations they had no control over. Mm -hmm. And navigating all of these decisions, none of which are good. Right. They're just choosing from all of these bad choices. So that's my nonfiction recommendation. And my fiction recommendation is The Solitude of Prime Numbers by Paolo Giordano. So this is a translated work from Italian. 
and it follows two characters named Alice and Mateo, and they meet when they're teenagers, and it has a lot of, like Tilly was saying in The Goldfinch, like, really small details that you can focus on. It is very character-oriented. You delve a lot into their minds, and the whole premise of it is that two prime numbers will never meet. Mm. It will never, you will never have a match. So they go through their whole life kind of weaving, weaving in and out of each other's lives. And at the end, they ultimately don't get to be together. So it is very sad, but a very moving journey, Mm. just like the goldfinch. (laughs) So if you want to be sad times three, you can read the goldfinch running with scissors and the solitude of prime numbers. Oh my god, just watch Angela's Ashes after and then you're good for a decade. <laughs> oh my god, talk about sad books, holy moly. I watched that movie as a kid with my mom cuz I was like, "What are you watching?" and sat down. Oh my god, never again. <laughs> holy. Yeah, I read the book in high school and I was like, "This is not what I need in my life yeah. right now." And another true story, <laughs> memoir. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. I need another well, sip of my hot toddy. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta calm down. Some comfort. Yeah, a cup of comfort. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you haven't read the book, The Goldfinch, and don't want to know how it all turns out, you should stop listening now. And if you like what you're hearing, which I don't know if you will, but if you do, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you like us. If you don't, yes. I don't. <laughs> Nikki, make this sound better. <laughs> I can only do so much with what I'm given. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start again. <laughs> You're doing great. I thought you did great. <laughs> okay. You're a champ. We're moving into spoiler territory now, so if you haven't read the book and don't want to know how it all turns out, you should stop listening now. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. So, once again, if you don't want any spoilers, you should leave now. Are they gone? <laughs> The gallery's closed. <laughs> the gallery. I know. <laughs> oh my god. How apt. Okay. So we'll begin with a recap of the rest of the book so we're all on the same page. Um, please get ready, folks, because I tried to summarize a 770-page book as fast as I can, but there's a lot to get through, so let's delve in. <laughs> all right. The book begins with our main character, Theo Decker, staying at a hotel in Amsterdam. He seems distressed and talks about dreaming of his mother for the first time in years. The story then shifts to 13-year-old Theo living in New York City, who has just been suspended from school and is on his way with his mother to meet the principal. We learn of his intense bond with his mother, though they are both annoyed at each other today. Their school meeting is several hours away, and his mother wants to see an art exhibit on the Dutch masters, so they head into a museum. While at the museum, Theo catches sight of a red-headed girl his own age, accompanied by an older man, and tries to work up his courage to talk to her. His mom points out a tiny painting that she loves, The Goldfinch, by Carel Fabricius, and while Theo is distracted by the girl, he also admires the painting. When it's time to go, Theo heads down to the gift shop area, but his mother wants to see one last exhibit and promises she'll meet him down there. Just as Theo makes eye contact with the girl and decides to go talk to her, there is a huge explosion, which knocks him out. When he wakes up, he is surrounded by shrapnel and bodies, and while he struggles to get his bearings, he sees an old man, gravely injured but still alive. 
Theo goes over to him and realizes he was the man accompanying the red-headed girl, who was nowhere in sight. The man gestures urgently to something buried in the wreckage, and Theo pulls it out, revealing the goldfinch painting, somehow still intact, and in his dazed state, he puts it in his bag for safekeeping. The old man babbles to Theo for a while, before finally giving him a ring off his finger and telling him to go to a place called Hobart and Blackwell. Theo manages to get out of the museum and onto the street, escaping the notice of the crowds of people and first responders outside. He goes back to his apartment and waits for his mother, but eventually two social workers arrive to inform him she died in the explosion. As Theo's father recently abandoned the family for a new life, and Theo doesn't know how to contact him, the social workers take Theo to his childhood friend Andy Barber's house until permanent custody is arranged. The Barbers are a wealthy and kind family with many eccentricities, and Theo struggles to adjust to his new life. After several weeks of grief and distraction, Theo looks up Hobart and Blackwell and discovers it's, it's an antique shop in the city. He travels there and meets the girl he saw at the museum, Pippa, who was recovering from a head injury. He learns that the dying man he talked to in the gallery was her uncle, Welty Blackwell, and he meets Welty's business partner, furniture restorer James Hobie Hobart. Theo finds solace and calm in the shop and visits often until Pippa is sent away to boarding school. Soon after, Theo is taken into the custody of his unexpectedly returned father, who now lives in Las Vegas with his new girlfriend, Zandra. Theo secretly takes the painting and begins a new life in Vegas. He befriends loner Boris, a worldly and charismatic young Ukrainian boy in his class, and they soon form a close bond and experiment copiously with drugs and alcohol. Theo's father and Zandra are often out gambling, and Theo and Boris spend much of their time alone in an empty house. A man named Mr. Silver makes several visits to the house to collect overdue gambling debts, and soon Theo's father pressures Theo to withdraw money from his savings account his mother left him. When this proves impossible, Theo's father hits him and tries to drive into the desert to escape his debts, but he gets into a fatal car accident. Though Boris begs him to stay, Theo anxiously makes his way back to New York with the wrapped-up painting and shows up at Hobie's shop. He hides the painting in a secure storage facility, then settles uneasily into an early college program, and the narrative of the book jumps ahead eight years. The second half of the book unfolds at a whirlwind pace. Theo, now 22 years old and addicted to prescription medication, has become a partner at the antique shop. To save the antique shop from debt, Theo has been selling fake antiques and is being blackmailed by a victim of the scam, Lucius Reeve, who somehow found out that he has the goldfinch. We learn that Andy and Mr. Barber died in a tragic sailing accident, and Theo ends up proposing to Andy's younger sister, Kitsy, even though he's still in love with Pippa. Theo discovers Kitsy is having an affair, but she still wants to marry him to please her mother. Upset and on his way downtown to buy drugs, Theo unexpectedly runs into Boris, who he hasn't seen or heard from since he left Vegas. Boris ashamedly confesses to Theo that he stole the painting from him when they were in Las Vegas, and that he's been using it as collateral in drug deals, but that it's gone missing. Theo is shocked by this news, as he thought he'd been secretly keeping the wrapped-up painting for years. Boris promises that he will find the painting and disappears. At Theo and Kitsy's elaborate engagement party, Boris shows up and insists that he and Theo fly to Amsterdam immediately to retrieve the painting. Theo leaves Pippa a letter, an expensive necklace, confessing his love. 
In Amsterdam, Boris and Theo successfully retrieve the painting, but end up in a shootout where Theo kills a henchman and Boris gets shot, and the painting is once again stolen from them. They are separated, and Theo spends several feverish days alone in an Amsterdam hotel, as we see him at the beginning of the book. Just as Theo has decided to end his life out of guilt and fear, Boris returns and tells him that the goldfinch is back in its rightful place after calling the authorities on the thieves. He splits the reward money with Theo, who struggles to believe that all of his worries about the painting are now over. Theo returns to New York and confesses everything to Hobie, who is understanding but insists he right all his wrongs. Theo embarks on a long journey to discreetly buy back all the fake antiques he sold. Pippa returns the expensive necklace but tells Theo she does love him. However, she feels that their shared trauma and experiences would only lead to disaster if they were together. Theo reflects on his life and realizes that even through all the pain and heartache, beauty and joy and art make life worthwhile. <sighs> Emotions. <laughs> I know. Yeah. What a whirlwind. So, <laughs> truly, there's so many... I mean, we were talking about this before we start recording, but it's so many things, yet so few things mm-hmm. yeah. happen in this book because you spend so much time in Theo's head and going through all of his paranoia mm-hmm. and anxiety and stress about having ended up with this painting kind of not really on purpose mm-hmm. and then not knowing what to do with it. And mm-hmm. then, you know, descending kind of into madness about it all. Yeah. I will say one thing that I felt was... It didn't feel like it was trying too hard to be original. The events at the museum paralleling the painter's Mm. own death was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciated that part of the story. Um, Carol Fabricius died in an explosion in Paris. So just like all of those people die in the explosion Mm -hmm. in the museum. But I think that that's just like, it was such a nice way to kick off this book. I feel like it gave another layer to me um, of caring about Mm -hmm. what was going on because it was um, so much more tethered to real life, knowing that fact. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) About like, yeah. Wow. (laughs) I did not remember that bit of info. There's so many layers. Oh my god. I don't think they talk about it in the book. I don't think they did either. uh, They mention it briefly in one chapter, um, but like not extensively. It's when he's talking to the art dealer, like the shady guy. What an interesting part of the novel. I ended up highlighting a lot of their conversations because I was just so interested in the way that guy Horst, I think, the way he talked about art. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I find, um, like I was saying before, I felt like the synopsis doesn't really talk about what actually happens in the book. Mm. Like, I feel like it's very misleading because even though um, the painting is the catalyst for all of the things that happen, it doesn't really feel like it matters until the last hundred pages of the book. Mm. So other than him having a little bit of anxiety... Um, kind of the eight years later when he becomes an adult um, and him going to look at the painting, it doesn't really feel of that much consequence Mm -hmm. because there were so many other things going on Mm -hmm. in his life. I found it very easy for me to forget that that was supposed to be 
the driving force of all of the things that happened in this book. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I I did feel like the painting was very important, and maybe it was just because I have reread it, and so I was really noticing all the times he talks about it. But I think where it represents so much of what he lost with his mother, right? Mm-hmm. Even in the beginning, his mother is often described as being kind of bird-like. And so I think that idea of the actual painting, which is a goldfinch with a small chain attached to a little stand, mm-hmm. and the idea of his mother being kind of like tethered to this marriage that was really awful and abusive, and then, you know, not being able to pursue her dreams and kind of, I don't know, I think there's a lot um, to read into there as like a metaphor for his mother. But I know, I know what you're saying. I definitely agree with those aspects, but I just mean he's pulled into the criminal underworld mm. of art. And I'm like, at the very he's end, he's not really <laughs> at the very until, end, like the last 50 pages. Until, yeah. yeah, the last like 80 pages, yeah. he is, which within a 771 page book <sighs> is minuscule. <laughs> yeah. So I think just in that way, like I really appreciated the metaphor. But I really didn't, I was really struggling as I was reading this to see why that was the thing they chose to focus on Mm. with the kind of uh, marketing of this book. Mm. There were a lot of other things that I felt like um, are more intriguing and were more intriguing in the book. I think the end was probably one of my least favorite parts, Mm. reading about Mm. them actually being in Amsterdam and all of that stuff. I was kind of like, let's go back and him, like, deal with Kitsy and, like, figure out his life and <laughs> stuff like that. I was like, I don't care yeah. <laughs> about the painting. Get get rid of the painting. Maybe they're, who cares? they're trying to market to people like me who are like, oh, it's a thriller about an art piece? Or they're like, Dan Brown readers, look. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which I, when I watched The Da Vinci Code, I had that exact same problem. I was like, I thought this was a thriller about art. I didn't know it was all about religion because I was a kid. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I'm so confused. Anyway. Really yeah. Wow. What a time. <laughs> um, <laughs> To me, the goldfinch reminded me, like the actual painting of the goldfinch uh, reminded me of the boots in Miss Julie by, mm. uh, oh my God, Strindberg, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, August Strindberg. Yes. Uh, just because it it had this like looming presence in the back of his mind all the time that he kept bringing up and it had this power over him of like, what do I do with it? It's too far gone now. I'm going to get in trouble. And like, I just, yeah, I just kept thinking about how he wasn't able to let go of really anything in this book. Like he has so much trauma from his childhood and then the the explosion and losing his mother and everything that comes after that and he uh, they did put him with a therapist but he wasn't ready to really go through a therapy at the time right and then things just escalate from there so yeah i was um yeah yeah i was always kind of like stressed about the painting whenever he brought it up and then at the end when boris was like "Mm, i took that years ago i was shooketh i was i'd actually forgotten that whole plot point (sighs) i threw the book i was like what the fuck boris I loved you. No. <laughs> How could you? We were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. We were all you. rooting for Not you. Not I. 
You didn't love Boris? No, I, I, I said this to you both earlier, and I was so surprised when you were both like, he was my favorite. I was like, oh, okay, because... I don't know. For me, Boris and Theo's dad, who I don't remember his name. What was Theo's dad's name? Larry. Larry. <laughs> Typical. Um, <laughs> apologies to any nice Larrys. But um, Boris and Larry, they just reminded me of people who are in my real life, like in my mm-hmm. family, who I won't go into detail about. Um, but it was like very frustrating for me to read because there's like so many things that happened with Boris or with Theo's dad that I was like, hmm, wow, where have I heard that before, you know? And, like, not mm-hmm. in, like, a, oh, this is really an original kind of way, but just, like, it was just a lot for me to read. And so there were moments where I was like, oh, good for Boris. Like, you know, he's his friend. But I had a really hard time liking Boris because I just – he just made me so upset and frustrated. And like, I know that he had a lot going on and he definitely needed help too. But like, yeah, I have family members who are very similar to those two characters. And it was just a lot for me to read, honestly. Like, (laughs) so that's where Mm -hmm. I was coming from with Boris and Theo's dad. I, I was just constantly angry and upset at them. And I just, I was dying for Theo to get back to New York. And when he finally did get back to New York, I was like, good, let's, I don't care for those people. Like, <laughs> I don't want them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I totally get that. I think that's fair. I think um, I really just love that those two lonely boys found each other mm-hmm. and found friendship and like, while they weren't managing their lives very well, I think there's a lot of really beautiful moments of them growing up together and kind of connecting. And they just needed someone to, like, understand what the other person was going through. And it mm-hmm. felt like such a deep friendship. Well, I, I mean, I don't think Boris is, like, the world's greatest person or anything. And I don't Neither know if I could Theo. be friends with him yeah. in real life. Well, yeah, exactly. So I do think they kind of belong together in a way. And I think Theo, when he's talking about Boris, and he first met him at the beginning, and, like, older Theo is kind of saying, this is one of the great friendships of my life. And I really did I really did feel that connection all the way through it. And Boris is such a little scamp. He's so charismatic. Like, right. I can just tell he's, like, charming all the ladies, but he's, like, bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think when he shows up at the antique shop looking for Theo, and Theo's, like, friends who are the, the Russian mover guys are, like, some weird dude is coming after you. I don't like the look of him. Like, watch yeah. out. But then it turns out to be Boris. It's like, my friend. <laughs> and that, yeah, I don't know. I... I understand, and I don't think they're good, like, role models or anything, but I just have a soft spot in my heart for Boris. (laughs) Yeah, the part in Las Vegas, that's where they are, right? Las Mm -hmm. Vegas? Yeah. I don't know why my mind, like, like glitched. (laughs) Um, When they're kids um, in Nevada, that was my favorite part of the Mm -hmm. whole book, was seeing Theo really connect to somebody, because even though... Him and Andy used to be friends when they were younger. He's really there because he couldn't think of anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, where would you like to go? And he goes, Andy Barber's house. And they say, great, we'll take you there because we don't have anywhere else for you to go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So all of the parts in Las Vegas really, really stuck with me. Um, specifically, the scene with Theo and Boris in the pool. Mm. That's something that stuck with me through the whole rest of the novel. The two of them kind of fighting and the fight becoming more real until it got a little too serious. And then they just kind of decide that they're going to they're going to stop. They're still mad, but they go inside. And just that image of like Boris pushing Theo under the water and like the bloody nose and everything. I don't know what it it triggered almost like a memory in me, like a memory of something that's never happened. Mm. And that I think that scene is part of the reason why I liked Boris so much. But with this whole book, I found all of these characters live in this world that I'm sure exists for people. But I found myself while reading this thinking, yeah, what's the big deal about doing drugs all the time? Why... (laughs) No, but listen, like, why why do people place these things on such, like, extreme, like, polars if, if like, Kitsy cheating on Theo? She's like, yeah, but it's fine because I don't really care and I still want to marry you. <laughs> and while I'm reading this, I'm going, yeah, that checks out because she's saying it. And I'm like, great, but these people this like Upper East Side mentality, they live in this world of as long as things look okay, Mm. then it's okay. Mm. And I really found myself falling into that with this through the whole book. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I... I know you guys don't agree because you're like, drugs are bad. Oh, no. (laughs) Which they are, but like... (laughs) The drug thing, I'm like, that's a societal problem. You know what I mean? Because like, there's other places, I think Norway, looking at you, Norway, love you, want to go there so badly. Um, I'm pretty sure they've like decriminalized a lot of their drugs and they have like a lot of campaigns are like, if you overdose, call this number, have a friend call this number, like this is what you can do, all these things. So I'm like, if society like didn't have every drug be hot take (laughs) if drugs weren't illegal everywhere people could get help people could enjoy them and not ruin their lives potentially you know what i mean all sorts of things um for me i hated kitsy because she was just so like not even a real person to me i was like who are you like she yeah she fucking she needs to go to therapy like (laughs) legit i'm like i don't know who you are at all what is going on in your head i don't know like what you're thinking about what your motives are it's just so bizarre to me like she's just so fake i couldn't stand that but with like I don't know. Yeah, I have a few relatives, some that are not no longer here, that had a lot of, like, substance abuse problems where there were, like, similar p- parts in Las Vegas that have happened to my relatives. And, like, men coming to the door looking for money, stuff like that, mm. where, like, that's why I was just like, okay, I don't approve of this relationship. I know you're both troubled, but, like, if this were, <laughs> if this were real life... If this were a movie, I feel like I'd watch it and go, they're not good for each other, you know? I'm glad you have a friend, no. but you're not good for each other, you know what I mean? We we know what this would be like if it were a movie, because it's happened, and there would be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no subtext This were another movie. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. if this was another other movie that wasn't this. I will tell you a character I did like that you might be surprised. I liked Xandra. I gotta say, I did. I liked you. I liked <laughs> I liked. Yeah, I did not like Xandra. <laughs> Bad red flag. I didn't like her, but I liked whenever she was around. I thought she was so much fun to read and to listen to. The voice that the narrator sure. gave, I was like, yes, I've met Xandra many times. The voice, her mannerisms. Oh my god, yeah. I, I, it was so The good. chain smoker voice. And I remember seeing all these soccer moms who were just like her growing up. Hopefully not just like her, but like presented themselves the same kind of way. And I just thought she, I never knew what to expect with her. And I just had so much fun when she was around, even though I also, I didn't like her as a person. But like, yeah, I just thought, and I mean, she was kind of funny as like a weird female role model for them. Because she was like, whatever, you can smoke, but get get your own smokes. Just take it mine. And they cost a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. You know, like she didn't care if they did things. As long as they didn't take her shit. I'm like, okay. But I just thought she was fun to read. Of all the characters, she was the one I had the hardest time picturing. And I think mm. it's because she's described in a lot of contradictory terms. So yes. I think there's words like she's described as kind of having leathery skin. Yes. She like tans a lot. But I then was, Boris yeah. thinks she's hot. Yes. And, and like Larry thinks she's hot. But like the way she's described, I had a hard time <laughs> understanding what she looked like. Yeah, I feel like the first time you meet her, I was definitely getting, like, this lady who has, like, a really square, like, frame <laughs> with really leathery skin, like, crepey arms, super, super tan, like, almost, like, offensively tanned, and, like, bleach blonde hair that, like, flips out. That's kind of the vibe that I got. But then when they get to Las Vegas... And they're talking about how she's really good looking. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> what <Yeah>. is this? <laughs> I think it's... I don't know. I feel like the good looking part is maybe the boys picking up on her her confidence and just the fact that maybe. she's just her all the time. And she knows how mm -hmm. to work the men around her. Like, she's she's got Larry on a medication schedule. You know what I mean? That's a whole other level of work in the room. <laughs> like, that is scary. But she she knows how to get what she wants. And, yeah, and she's, like, the cool mom figure to them, right? Like, you can smoke, you can drink, whatever. Just don't take mine. You know? Like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe they pick, picked up on her, like, confidence and just her whatever, which, you know. <laughs> maybe. Not for me, but. Who knows? Cool. <laughs> but, um. I found a lot of the, the Las Vegas stuff, I think, I loved that Boris and Theo like were, became friends there, but I found a lot of the Las Vegas chapters really upsetting to reread because it's just, they so badly need like parents mm -hmm. in their lives. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad to see them living in these like empty houses at this end of this suburban street that's literally being reclaimed by the desert. And there's no food in the fridge ever, and they eat like gum and smoke cigarettes and drink vodka and all the time. All and day. it's yeah. it's so it's so sad. Yeah. And so while I have this like kind of dichotomy of I'm glad that they became friends there, but I want them both. I want better for both of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is I, such a relief I find when Theo gets back to New York. Mm -hmm. Right. 
yeah, I think like growing up, I I spent until I was 12 in a really small town that the only thing there was to do when you went to high school was smoke and drink and do drugs. So a lot of my friends' older siblings were doing those things all the time. And then when I got to high school and I moved to a bigger place, I realized that even though there are more things to do, still some people don't want to do those things. Mm. And so I hung out with people who were doing drugs and drinking a lot. And even though I wasn't necessarily partaking in a lot of those things, um, I, I saw those kids that their parents worked two or three jobs and weren't around or they had a single mom or their parents just didn't give a shit. And I was at those kids' house, houses on the weekend partying with them while their parents were out working a night shift or they just didn't come home on the weekend because they were going to stay a few nights at their boyfriend's house and stuff. So reading, reading the chapters with Boris and Theo while they were sad made me think about the people that I hung out with in high school and it made me really just genuinely happy for them because I know that I don't know what my friends would have done if they would have had to spend their time by themselves. Mm. So even though it's really awful what they were doing, it was still, in my opinion, in the end, better for them Mm -hmm. than to not have anyone to do anything with. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's weird. This book just makes me like, feel so many contradictory things mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does yeah and i think that's why it felt sad in las vegas because it feels so realistic right it's so easy for these kids to kind of get like slip through the cracks of of society and of like n- none of their teachers school ever thought that anything was wrong you know mm-hmm. nobody ever caught on to the fact that they were like high all the time or anything and you know the, f- the foster systems didn't pick them up so yeah, it, yeah it's just it, it that's what makes it feel real but also what makes it feel sad i think and they're in the middle of a desert you know what i mean yeah. like it's desolate it's kind of in its own little world there and they're not even in las vegas they're like just outside of it <clears throat> yeah and like a, a subdivision that never took off mm-hmm. yeah i'm always like is that are those houses people like <laughs> I was rereading it. I was like, does, does anyone own these homes or do they just kind of like squat in them? Are they like model homes? Who knows? Unclear. <laughs> With Xandra, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I truly. really loved Andy. And when he died, I was so upset. Andy, to me, I was just like, <laughs> he was so sweet. I feel like. He, you know, maybe he didn't have the emotional capacity all the time to deal with everything, but he did the best he could with the tools he had, you know? And I think he was as there for Theo as he could have been. And when he go, when Theo goes back to New York and finds out down the road, like years later, that he dies in a tragic boating accident. I was like, <laughs> because earlier in the book, we find out that he hates sailing and he only goes when his dad makes him go and his dad loves the water. And it just made me so sad. I didn't expect him to die. And then I was like, why am I surprised with this book? You know? 
I know so many characters died. I actually had forgotten about that part too, that because we never see it happen, right? It's just like kind of a blink and you miss it kind of his brother talks about it, Mm -hmm. um, that they died. And I, I kind of stopped reading and I was like, wait a minute, I totally forgot about this. I mean, I could rem- I remembered that Kitsy and Theo uh, got engaged, but I was like, where was Andy? Uh-huh, and then early yeah. on in the book when Kelly was saying, I really love Andy. I hope nothing bad happened to him. I was like, me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, w- I got really upset um, with uh, Theo seeing Mr. Barber mm. for the first yeah. time since he came back yeah. and seeing him um, in this kind of like psychotic state and everything, I was like, "Oh, this is like not boding well yeah. Yeah. at all for anyone." So <laughs> when he sees Andy's brother and he he's like, "Yeah, my dad and Andy died on the boat," I was like, "I knew that was leading somewhere. I just didn't think it was going to be there." Yeah. And while I didn't particularly have any feelings for Andy either way. I think Donna really set him up to kind of be like a tragic figure. Yeah. 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 She did a great job. I was like, yeah, whatever, Andy, you know, he was there for him and they kind of rekindled their friendship, but not enough to really stay in touch. So, mm-hmm. oh, well. And then when he, you find out that he died, I was like, oh, shit. No. Andy. 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 <laughs> He was so pure-hearted. It was so sad. It was sad. <sighs> so we've kind of danced around this a lot, but I kind of want to ask a direct direct question, which is how do we feel about the eight-year jump in the middle of the book? I don't like it. Why? Because I want all the details. <laughs> I know. I want every single stupid fucking detail. Like... I, even the shit that's boring, I want to know because I was so invested Mm -hmm. in his life and it made me so angry when it was like the next part, eight years later. And I was like, what? Yeah. I was kind of surprised, but I wasn't angry. I was just like, oh, okay. I guess nothing important happened. Great. Cut out 500 pages. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Yeah. She probably wrote it down still. We could ask. Do you have those pages? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of made me think about, um, you know, in a TV show when a major character dies and then they flash forward a while because they don't want the viewer to necessarily be with the, all the characters as they grieve. It kind of made me uh-huh. feel like that, where it was like, you've you've gotten... Theo has gotten to a point where he's kind of okay. He, like, gets into this early college program, but he doesn't feel very good. You kind of still get the sense that, like, something's not quite right with him. Mm. And then it jumps ahead so that we don't have to, like, live in that weird state with him. We can just see kind of what he's become. Mm. So I have conflicting feelings on it. Sometimes I I think it's good because, like Nikki said with the – or Kelly said with the length, to to cut out some more length. But I also, like Nikki, want to see all the details all the time. I want to see from the moment the character is born to the moment they take their final breath. That's what I want. <laughs> this was the Hakuna Matata moment where they're walking on the the tree bridge Ooh, and then he yeah. grows up. Because I was like, okay. To Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah. It's like Hakuna Matata in like a minor key. Yes. Hakuna. Because it's still not <laughs> Because, okay, so Simba exactly. learned how to find bugs and eat them. And he was like, okay, I'll eat bugs now. It's fine. I won't hunt animals. And Theo learned how to revitalize antiques and sell them. 
So there we go. <laughs> and also develop a debilitating drug habit. Yes. Well, he already developed and one. Off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I do. But it was such expensive habit. Yeah. Too. Well, like, I was really surprised at that chapter when he like because he didn't outright say he was engaged to Kitsy until like a few pages in, but it was like kind of obvious that they were together. But I was still kind of like, wait, they're not. They're not together. And then when he was like, yeah, we're getting married or whatever, I was like, what? I was so thrown. And then when she turned out to be a piece of shit, I was not surprised because I was like, what the fuck? You know, like, why are you with Kitsy of all people? <laughs> yeah, there was a, a scene with them. I think probably the first scene um, that you see them together as a couple when they're in this restaurant and they're talking and he grabs her hand and he like holds it to his face or whatever and he just thinks this is really good or like i'm so happy but it's like you're he's telling himself he's happy yeah he's not feeling happy Mm -hmm. and i just related to that Mm -hmm. so much just like viscerally and it was a really hard to read Mm -hmm. yeah i think there was a a line that really stuck out to me when uh after he finds out that Kitsy has been having this affair and isn't really in love with him and kind of has been living this like secret double life because she's always had this guard up with him where um, I think even though they've fought about this, he's found out she wants to continue the engagement. They sleep together. And then he says something waking up in the morning about how it was easy to pretend like everything was fine because that's all we'd been doing all along, wasn't it? It was pretending. Mm-hmm. And mm. it was so sad and i get the sense that theo would have continued on that path if boris hadn't swooped in with the like the heist the art heist at the Mm -hmm. end and i do get the sense after that that theo has broken off the engagement with kitsy i don't think it's really explicitly stated but it it is feels like it's going in that direction where he's just like well i guess this is what i'm doing with my life it's what people want it's Mm -hmm. the way it should be it's what you know how it should have ended up yeah I think he would have stayed with her until Mrs. Barber died. Yeah. Right. And then maybe let the relationship deteriorate enough that they could go their separate ways. But yeah, I don't know that that whole that whole section with them, I felt like my stomach was just kind of in a knot the whole time. Mm-hmm. And seeing when she is with let me look at his Tom Cable. Name. Tom Cable. Ew. He just sounds like a skeezer, yeah. doesn't he? He sure does. <laughs> like, the scene where Theo is watching her and Tom in the restaurant, and they leave, and she's tucked into his arm and stuff, and Theo's like, what? She is never like that with me. Mm-hmm. That's really weird. Yeah. And I was like, red alert! Red alert! <laughs> The fact that he was like, we don't ever really talk about anything important or like she never has an emotional reaction to anything. Or she just like skips over. If you ask her a question, she doesn't want to answer. She pretends she doesn't hear it. Like if things get deep, she'll laugh and change the subject. Yeah. I personally, I hate when people do that that I'm dating. Like. Because I want somebody that I can talk to about deep things. And if every time I get into something deep, they're going to be like, yeah, well, that's silly. Like, (laughs) I'd be like, shut the fuck up. You're silly. Bitch. Yeah. Bitch. (laughs) Yeah. 
Kitsy. What kind of name is Kitsy? Is it Catherine or some crap? It is Catherine. It is Catherine. Ugh, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. There's nothing wrong with Catherine. I'm just saying Kitsy. It's very Upper East Side. Also, yeah. on that vein, the fact that they all called them Mummy and Daddy. Yep. Fucking Even gross. into adulthood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you're a kid, fine. Then you can graduate to mom and dad. I think it's a states <laughs> thing. Yeah. I really do. Oh, really? It's, yeah. They. It's definitely a Southern thing. And I think that there's something... Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not super rich and I don't live in New York. I really only have like movies and books, but it's a common theme. So it makes me think it's not just a literary choice <sighs> that adults call their parents mummy and daddy affectionately. Mm. I don't think it's a lie. It's it's happened too many yeah. times. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> Something about Same. it is not great, though. Yeah, it feels it it's feels not right. Yeah, I think it's the sex sexualization of the word "daddy" that really just turns yeah. everything <laughs> yeah. off for me. I I'm gonna change this topic real quick. <laughs> Go for it, but not not in the way we were talking about before. <laughs> um, I want to ask because I. I really want to know, do you both think that Theo and Pippa actually love each other? Or is it just yet another example of two, quote unquote, broken, if you want to even say that? I don't, I don't really believe in that. But two people who have a lot of emotional trauma bonding together, because I don't think they actually love each other personally. I feel that they do love each other. And I think it really clinches it for me at the end when Pippa says, we can't be together because she's aware all along that Theo's in love with her. He's very obvious about it. And he's aware too that it's, he talks a lot about like, is this just because I've latched onto her as a, you know, a surrogate for motherly love and like being together in this traumatic experience and then all along, Pippa has kind of been, like, not sure about it. He's mentioned kind of a few times where they've connected, and he's gone in for a kiss, and she's kind of brushed him off. So he's been thinking this whole time it's unrequited. And then at the end, when he's given her this letter expressing his love, and she writes back to him and says, you know, that I, I don't want you to think I don't love you, because I do, but we would tear each other apart mm. if we were together, because we're both, we both have too much... It, too much sadness and grief and trauma to love each other. And I thought, wow, what an incredibly self-aware person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, honestly, I think that's the best way that romance could have ended. Yeah. I think it wouldn't have felt right if they had ended up together. No. Especially where she was, like, not reciprocating for most of the novel. But I think, too, the fact that Theo talks a lot about how she's not very beautiful. And if she had been more beautiful, then he would have been able to like write off his love like think like oh well it's just that i'm attracted to her but he talks about how she's kind of strange looking and she's got these like injuries that are still kind of present in her body and he, he said i think at one point something about being so undone by her plainness mm -hmm. is how i know that it's love and i'm fucked mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. to me it did feel like they loved each other mm -hmm. i can totally see a reading where they do not love each other i think it's it's talked about enough like i don't think 
I think it's romanticized, but also yeah. they kind of practically realize it as well. Yeah. I believe it. I think that Theo believes he loves her. I think that she is um, kind of just another tether that he can't let go of. Mm. And because she does kind of drift in and out of the story while visiting Hobie, it he keeps that thought there because he knows she'll be coming around again at some point. I think with Pippa and maybe maybe I am just like reading too much into this, but I feel like when she's like, I love you, but we can't be together, that's kind of like a letting him down easy mm. kind of thing. He, she maybe she does love him, but like a brother mm-hmm. or like a family member maybe. that she sees at Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> so I don't know. I I'm really glad that they didn't end up together. I don't think that it would have served the story in any real way. No. And I think it was written, like you said, Tilly, there's like, it's, it's written in a way that you can see both sides very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's right there both ways, however you want to interpret it. But I personally don't think that she loved him in a romantic way. Mm-hmm. And I think that he loves the idea of her. Yeah. I think he just really loves this idea that if they were together, they would be taking care of one another because they know that trauma. They know what the other person has been through. But just because they were both in that explosion doesn't mean that they've ever experienced anything the same. No. Mm-hmm. And their lives were completely different after for good or for bad. And I think that he just, he romanticizes this idea of the two of them. Mm-hmm. So I wish she did love him. But I, don't. <laughs> I, I just can't, can't get behind it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a sucker for a tragic love story. So I'm just like, I believe it with all my heart. I'm like, they can't be together, but they love each other, but they want to be together, but they can't. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's patching up the hole in my heart. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that makes me so stressed. I, <laughs> Well, what do you think, Kelly? I'm more with Nikki because I feel like the fact that they have this thing tying them together and the fact like Hobie being kind of a father figure for Theo, I think they care Mm -hmm. about each other. I definitely don't doubt that. I don't doubt that she cares about his livelihood and you know, um, thinks fondly of him, but I don't think there's a romantic love. And I, I would have been pretty annoyed, honestly, if they got together just because I just feel like it would have been a whole mess. And then it just would have been even worse for him. And yeah, I think he, there seems to be a common theme of him in this book, you know, holding on to things, not being able to let go, romanticizing. Um, he's very introspective and like he's infatuated with her from the start, but he doesn't know anything about her until like years later, because even when he meets her, he doesn't really know anything about her. Right. 
So, and she doesn't even know who he is. She just kind of assumes she knows him because she has like a head trauma injury. So, um, but yeah, I think they're good friends. I don't think there's a romantic love there. And I'm glad that they didn't get together because I would have been really annoyed and I would have been worried and I would have been like, oh God, there's going to be a sequel because I need to know how this turns out. (laughs) I would have been so upset and stressed out. So I think... I think what really solidified for me him not, like, actually loving her and just kind of being more enthralled with her was the way that he talked about her boyfriend. Because mm. he really loved to hate on that guy. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like she, do- she doesn't like that, but he likes that. What, like, what do they even do together <laughs> and stuff? Well, clearly she likes the guy. Yeah. They live together. She's on a totally different continent. So she could come back if she wanted. If she broke up with the guy, she could just literally go back to the States Mm -hmm. and not have any contact with him. She'd never have to run into him again. Clearly, there's something about him that she likes. So I think him really, like, focusing on that aspect, I think if he really loved her, he would have seen past that and been like, well, if she's really happy, then I'm really happy for her. Mm-hmm. But he never really gets to that point. No, he's not well adjusted. <laughs> I think that no. I would have liked to, at the end, even if we didn't really meet her, if it would have just been kind of a, um, she touched my leg from the the airplane seat beside me or something like that some kind of inkling that he does find some kind of romantic happiness Mm. and some kind of um like tying of the knot in that way or like end of a chapter because i felt at the end when it was just like yeah things are fine and i'm going to return everybody's money from people i've swindled over these last few years which is great Mm -hmm. but i didn't really feel like for me that that was giving me what I needed. I mm. needed some kind of real personal note. Mm. It didn't have to be the like the end, but just something that was more personal than I'm I'm paying back my wrongdoings in business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Cause there is a kind of a sense at the end that he's obviously not over Pippa, Mm -hmm. that maybe he never will find romantic happiness. I think he always will be thinking about her and like wishing that he was with her instead of someone else. But I also think that's what makes me think it's, it is actually love for him because love is not always uh, like well-adjusted and healthy. And sometimes, I mean, we see that with Kitsy and Tom, right? Where she says like, Mm -hmm. you fall in love with the wrong people sometimes and they don't, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what can you do? So, yeah, I think it would have been nice to see some sort of um, indicator that he was going to be okay. But I also think th- the the way that it ended is so bittersweet that any other ending would have not felt quite right mm-hmm. to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that ending was, I think, I don't know if it was the one chapter <laughs> or if it was like one and a half chapters like at the end there, but it was a lot of up and down for me. Like I, I had the emotional 
roller coaster kind of feelings with the invisible life of Addie LaRue, like I've already said before, about like art and the passage of time. And when he talks about um in the Goldfinch, when he there's a whole passage where he talks about like when the immortal dies, like when pieces of art are lost or like when things you think will last forever disappear and like the void that's left. That was really, really um, hard for me to get through. <laughs> and um, I also, I wrote down this note, which I'm like, it's going to sound funny, but I don't mean it as a joke because I wrote down, I know most people don't enjoy reading suicidal thoughts or attempts in books, but I've discovered over the past few years that I really, really don't enjoy it. So I'm glad I read this book still. There's a lot of good things to take away, but like, I'm just, I've just discovered I'm very highly sensitive and there's certain things that my brain will not um, shut off and be like, no, no, this is fiction. You're fine. You're safe. Like, keep going. So the last chapter and a half, I had to like take seconds to breathe and like figure out what's going on because even the stuff that I feel like shouldn't have affected me, like when they're just talking about not living things like art (laughs) where it kind of is a living thing you know but there were the sections near the end there were parts where i was like oh my god that's beautiful and then like the nihilistic stuff i was like i don't need to read this right now like that's not my school of thought and (laughs) i've been through enough (laughs) yeah that's not my school of thought and i'm very anxious reading this i need to get to the fun stuff, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> so, cause I know Tilly, you had said like, it's sad, but it's also like hopeful. And I could see that, but I also was like, I need more hope. <laughs> I need more. <laughs> yeah. Hope full, yes. hope semi full. Yes. <laughs> Quarter full, hope half full. Yeah. <laughs> to drop. Yeah, I hope. definitely. When uh, when you told me, Tilly, that the end of the book made you feel ultimately hopeful about his future, I got to the end and I was like, where's that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I sold you both the wrong product. No, no. <laughs> to, me, to me, the end felt like another scene that mimicked him in the restaurant with Kitsy where he's going. Everything is good. And, like, everything's not actually good. Mm. That's how I felt at the end. I was like, this guy still has a drug problem. He is, like, having a hard time. He's having to go and pay all these people back. We don't know what's happening with the business. Like, if the business is just going to go under because of their reputation. If he's getting any help. his reputation. Yeah. Like, what's going to happen like Hobie's getting older what's gonna happen when Hobie dies and then he doesn't have anybody else Mm -hmm. and I was just like going down this like spiral of like it is not okay (laughs) I'm so sorry it's okay (laughs) I think for me the the uplifting part is Theo having this realization that he does want to continue living Mm -hmm. in this world even though it's difficult and having the goldfinch go back to its rightful place with people who take care of it and being in a museum where it can be like safe and appreciated and shared with the world 
rather than kind of like bundled away as mm-hmm. he had believed it was for so long and him having all this like guilt and shame and distress about it. So I think just some of those plot points that got kind of resolved near the end to me were enough to like feel a bit uplifting, but I agree. Right. It's not like a happy ending. No. <laughs> and like, there's a part um, near the end where Boris basically is like, Oh yeah, I know I'm going to die from alcohol or drugs. Like you can't change who you are. That's just the way it is. Forever. I stuff like that makes me so upset and I get so angry for the person because I don't believe that, you know, because for me, and I know it's a book, it's like whatever, but I just, I'm very, I'm a very passionate person (laughs) and I just feel like for me, that kind of thinking is so depressing to me and I, we can all go down that rabbit hole, but I just, I I want someone to give Boris and Theo a hug, really love them, really care for them, you know, and I want them to be like, no, we're going to get through this. We're going to get help. We're, it's going to be hard, but you don't have to, people can change, you know, like, I'm like <laughs> it just makes me so like heavy, you know, like, <sighs> so yeah. I- I need an epilogue. I need a 20 year later. He's okay. He's got a dog again. He's got maybe (laughs) one kid. I don't think he should have kids. Maybe he's got something going on. I need an epilogue to know that he's alive and well-ish. Okay? (laughs) That would have been a nice addition for sure. I'm um I'm kind of realizing as we're talking about this book and as I read other books and I was I was trying to describe this book to my mom because she's never read it and the way I was describing it and how it made me feel she was like I don't think I want that and I was like okay I understand but also I think it's important to read because it's like so beautiful and she was like no I don't need that and it kind of made me realize I tend to think of myself as someone who reads a lot of like happy books or like books that aren't super intense but I don't think I am I think I actually have pretty intense dark uh dark needs sometimes Mm. and i don't know i like dark plays but with certain topics Mm. for books i think it's just too in depth where a play is usually like not as in depth because it's like a living thing on its feet right um and also yeah short most of the time so like for plays i'm okay for movies i'm okay sometimes depending on the topic but books i just my mind is so imaginative and i'm like i don't like this i don't want to be in this spot i need to now read a uh, manga or a rom-com you know like i need to get out of this like i'm sure this is like a an over generalization but i feel like there's a really huge divide between people who read for fun people who are like i like to read And people who are like, reading fuels my soul in a way that nothing else does. Because I have pitched this book to friends, and they were like, yeah, no. (laughs) Like, that doesn't sound like a good time. And I'm like, it's not a good time. That's why you should read it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) But, like, pitching it to some of my friends that actually read a lot, like we do, they're like, oh, my God, that sounds super, like, enthralling and, like, so interesting and complex. And I'm like, yes, Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. You should pick it up. (laughs) But, I like, there's just something – it takes a very special person to describe a book to them and say, this book upset me so much. And they're like, yes, I'm going to read it. (laughs) 
Yeah, like I have not read A Little Life, but I don't think that this is the same at all from what I've heard about that book. And like, even though there were moments that I was like, wow, this is really hard for me, I still am very glad I read it. Um, I've already recommended it to a few people who I know like this kind of literary fiction style. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. Like, this is kind of a hard book to sell to people, even though it's such a popular book. <laughs> but like, I'm glad I read it, even though I had a lot of feelings, but I'm glad I read it, so. I'm glad you read it because you had a lot of feelings. <laughs> I have too many feelings. I don't want I more. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So this quote actually ties in with the Diviners episode oh. a, a little tiny bit. <laughs> Ooh. Um, and it's actually not a quote from the text mm, of the book. Okay. It's one of the quotes on a part, and it is, we have art in order not to die from the truth, Nietzsche. So it ties into the diviners because obviously Jericho reads a lot of Nietzsche, so I just thought that was funny. (laughs) But reading this, especially um, just with everything that's going on right now with COVID, And then just having personal life issues to deal with and thinking about how much I've been delving into reading, like it's March 5th or 7th or something, and I've read over 30 books this year. Mm -hmm. You've been reading so much. That shows how much I don't want to deal with real life. (laughs) So, (laughs) So just this was very apt for the time. I think all the time, but especially this time. Yeah. <laughs> and treat artists better, world. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, all types of artists, because they get you through all the times, good, bad, and they're usually left And they do alone. it because... <laughs> yeah, and they do it because, not because they want to, but because they have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So be kind. <laughs> be kind. Well, with that... Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of the BYOB podcast. If you enjoyed this and want to hear more from us, you can head over to our social media accounts to keep up to date on all things BYOB. We've got Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, the works. This is the end of our regular season, and we're so glad you've joined us along for the ride. You can always go back and listen to our back episodes, but we'll be taking just a little bit of a break. Um, coming up next is our J.R. Tolkien readathon and miniseries, which will include seven new episodes from us in the summer, delving into the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So if you haven't signed up for our readathon, what are you waiting for? Yeah. You'll get early access to the episodes and other fun interactive activities. So you can sign up at byobook-podcast.mailchimpsites.com. The first episode of our miniseries will be out July 28th. See you next time, and until then, keep on drinking in great stories. Cheers! Cheers.